and then we will spend some time in the word uh, this morning. So let's go ahead and let's, let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you, we thank you, and we love you uh, because you have done a great work in our heart. We, uh, st- we are here to worship you, and we realize that the only reason we have a desire to worship you is because of the work that you're doing upon our heart. We thank you for a good week this past week. We thank you for those times that we've had victory over sin and temptation. Once again, it's because of your work that you've done upon our heart, because of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done on the cross for us. And so we ask, Father, that as we consider him and as we look at him this morning, that your spirit would be working in our hearts, causing us to see Jesus, see the truth, see the hope that's promised, that our faith may be deepened, uh, th- that we would trust your son Jesus and that we would not waver from the faith. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. Go with me to the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29. John 1, 29. Notice what the apostle says here. He says, the next day, he, this is being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Kind of an interesting chapter. This, this chapter and this account deals with the first week of Jesus before he, it's, it's, kind, of the, it's kind of the week before he kind of goes and, and does the, uh, the turning the water into wine. It's, it's before he overturns the the tables at the temple for the first time, which kind of starts his inauguration as or his earthly ministry. It's interesting in the context you have in, in verse 19, you have people coming to John, and the question is, who are you? And John was very clear and, and confessed and, and said very clearly, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the one you're supposed to be looking for. There's another one coming. And he's the one you're supposed to be looking for. He said his job was very clear. I'm here to make straight the path. I'm here to prepare the way of the coming of the Lord. So I, I, that, this is what I do. This is my box. So this is who I am. Then the Pharisees come up to him and say, well, why are you baptizing if you're not the Messiah? Why are you baptizing if you're not Elijah? Why are you doing this? And once again, John the Baptist essentially says, look, I'm baptizing you with water, but you don't even understand. There's someone walking around right now that you don't know who I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. So it's on the heels of this, then that you get verse 29, and it says, the next day from that conversation. So in our mind as the reader, we we read this question of John. Who's John? John says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm getting ready for the Messiah. Why are you doing what you're doing? You don't understand. Stop thinking about me. Stop looking to me. I'm I'm preparing you for the one who's coming. So the next day, it says he saw Jesus coming towards him. Why Jesus was coming towards him to be baptized or preach. At this point, it doesn't really matter. What's more striking is what John says next when he says, behold. Now, just think about this as, as a reader. 
John is saying, there's one coming after me, and he's the one you're supposed to focus on. He's coming. All of a sudden, Jesus comes. Everything stops, and John says, look. Look at him. And then he makes this incredible statement. It's just absolutely incredible statement. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about this phrase. Let's ruminate a little bit, and let's uh, think about this phrase, the Lamb of God. First, it's clear, because John uses a definite article, the Lamb of God, we know that Jesus is unique. He's specifically singling out Jesus. And notice that Jesus is the Lamb of God. This is a very specific person with a very specific purpose. There's a lot, I I imagine, at the time, there were a lot of lambs and ewes and rams all around. But we're not thinking about all of the sheep in the nation of Israel. We're thinking about this one particular lamb. Then notice what it says. It says, the lamb of God. Literally, the one that comes from God. The one that's approved by God. The one whom God has sent. So, there's a lot of other lambs. And I'm sure, as we'll as we'll soon find out, that there was a lot of purposes that people had for those lambs, maybe even dealing with their sin. They're there. But this one, Jesus, he is a specific, designated, approved by God lamb, unique amongst all other lambs. This one is approved by God. I imagine um, it's really hard to put ourselves there But I imagine, since he's talking to a Jewish audience, that when he said the Lamb of God, I'm sure there was a couple things that immediately popped into their minds. Now, I'm not a mind reader, and I can't go back 2,000 years and think of what they were thinking. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, we're going to make a pretty good guess here that when John the Baptist said the Lamb of God, that they were thinking they had an image of a lamb. Some people suggested that John was just saying, look, here comes this innocent one. No. I mean, lambs are innocent. I mean, out of all creatures that God has created, can you think of a more vulnerable and innocent animal than a lamb? Okay, so that's true. But there's no doubt when he says lamb of God, he is thinking of the sacrificial lamb. There's no, there's no way that they could think of anything else in the context. In the context of Jewish people listening to a prophet, him talking about someone coming who's going who's, who's to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So, so it's this theologically minded people. He says in this theologically charged situation to Jewish people, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they're immediately thinking of a sacrificial lamb. Maybe, maybe some have suggested that they might have even thought of like the Passover lamb, right? You, you know of the Passover lamb. It was that, that in Exodus when Israel was slaves to Egypt, God delivered them from, from Egypt by, they would kill a lamb and then that blood would go on the doorpost and God would pass over them and they would not be killed and that was the significant event. And God told them numerous places to remember this event, to remember the Passover of when God delivered you from Egypt. And part of that 
Passover was the Passover lamb, the, the sacrifice of the specific lamb for Passover. And some people said that's what he's talking about. This, this one who's going to come and deliver people from the slavery of sin. Maybe, may, maybe they, they thought that. But there's also this other thought. When, when we talk about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, there's lots of sacrifices. They did lots of sacrifices for lots of different reasons. From saying I'm sorry as an act of repentance to God because of their sin. Way to dedicate the birth of a child. Or just to say thank you. So there's these hosts of, of several sacrifices. And there are rules within each of these sacrifices of what part's supposed to be kept by the priest. What part's supposed to be taken home. Huge long lists in the book of Leviticus that deal with all of these sacrifices. And when you look at these sacrifices, and you look at the things that are meant to be sacrificed, there is something very striking found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 5, verse 6. So let's just go back to Leviticus. Now, here in Leviticus 5, we're dealing with a guilt offering. Okay, We're dealing with a sin offering. We're dealing with an offering that someone would bring because of sin, because of they've done something wrong, and this is their sign of repentance to God to maintain their relationship with God. There there are some who may suggest, and I think wrongly, that it was through the Old Testament sacrifices that someone was saved, that that someone was declared righteous because they did all of these sacrifices. That is wrong. From Adam... Until the very end, right, the righteous shall live by faith. The book of Genesis is very clear. Abraham became righteous because he believed God. So this idea of being right with God, entering into a relationship with him, being declared righteous, is always, has always been on the basis of faith. Believing God, believing the promises of God. Okay, believing the hope that one has in God through the Messiah. These sacrifices were ways to maintain that relationship with God. These sacrifices that were for sin and guilt are a sign of one's repentance. So what you would do with these sin and guilt offerings is you would bring an innocent animal, you would place your hand on the animal, and that animal would die the punishment that you deserve, death, the wages of sin is death, and it would be as if the innocent is dying for the guilty. Okay? So in Leviticus 5, verse 6, notice what is said here. It says, He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for his sin. Now this word for atonement, in the English, what this means is that someone is at one with one, right? So it's the idea of reconciliation. There's, there's this issue between two parties, and atonement is the bringing them together, the reconciliation. When we think about reconciliation theologically, you and I, we ran away. The opposite way. God remains 
static. He is holy and righteous. So when we sin, we're moving away from him. He is reaching and grabbing us back to himself. It's not as if he did something wrong and we did something wrong, and we just need a mediator to kind of figure out our differences. We're completely, totally disobedient, running away, and God brings us back to himself. So when John the Baptist, I think, when he says to these Jewish men in steeped in this Jewish law, which at the time is what they were supposed to be doing, with the sin sacrifices. And he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They're thinking of this penal substitutionary sacrifice that is given where an innocent is taking the place of another. Now, This is a radically different idea of the Messiah than what they would have understood. Sometimes it's hard for us to go back and see some of the things that we know from the rest of Scripture. So for us, when we think of Jesus as the Messiah, as Christians, it's really hard to to, to not think to the cross and say, well, how how could anybody see Jesus and not realize that he came to die on the cross for the sins? They're so dumb. They should have saw it. They should have saw all the signs. You got to realize that in this time, they were being taught about a Messiah that was coming to be this warrior, this one that's going to deliver Israel from the Romans. They're looking for a lion. They were looking for this political figure. They didn't necessarily think of this political figure as being super religious, though he was. They didn't think of him as being the God-man. They were looking for this specific man, this specific political figure. So when John the Baptist says, the one that's coming is higher rank than I am, and there he is, he's the Lamb of God, I think the only way we could describe what they would have heard was, what? How? What? John, what are you talking about? You've eaten too many camels, John. That camel fur is getting to your brain. This is what he says, the Lamb of God. He points to Jesus, the Lamb of God. So when John says this, no doubt in his mind, he's thinking that Jesus is coming and in some way is going to deal with the sins of Israel. By saying he's the Lamb of God and thinking of this idea of taking away sins, no doubt there is the implication that John the Baptist, as a prophet, is prophesying in the manner in which Jesus will die and the indication of how his ministry is going to play out on earth. He's going to die vicariously for someone else. He who is innocent will die for the guilty and take their punishment. That's the implication here. He's making this grand statement, but it's also a prophecy of the future ministry of Jesus. So when he says, behold the Lamb of God, incredible theological phrase, incredible. We know from the rest of Scripture, past this point, we know some of the things about Jesus, that Jesus came and he offered himself as a sacrifice for many. He voluntarily does this for us. We know that this sacrifice took place on the cross where he was, he died, he was buried, and again on the third day he rose again. 
we know that, that the apostles, their message was, you need to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Believe in him alone and what he's done on the cross for you. And you can have the promises of God through Jesus, through his work. Specifically that work that he did on the cross. You can have your sins forgiven because of what he's doing. He died taking your place. He died for you. Romans 5, Paul develops this, this thought in really a lot of detail. That Even though we were enemies, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For God demonstrated his love in this way. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. An incredible statement. Incredible statement. Incredible looking at, at, at the, the ministry of Jesus, looking at the life of Jesus, looking at, th- this is the definition of his first coming, of, of that three-year ministry. This is what he's there for. He's there to deal with sin. He's there to die as a lamb, as a sacrifice. He's exclusively the one, by the way, the exclusive lamb that God approves for such a purpose. There's a lot of lambs in Israel at this time. They would have done sacrifices thinking that they were doing things for atonement. John the Baptist is saying, guys, guys, this is now the lamb that deals with sin. Now notice the next part. It says, behold the lamb of God. And then he says, who? This is what he does. He takes away the sin of the world. Incredible statement. Incredible statement. This, this idea of taking away means to, literally means to lift up, right? Lift up. It means to lift up and move to another place. So it's kind of a metaphor of what, of what he's going to do. It has the idea of removal. Uh, we, we could even say it has the idea of, of bearing the punishment of sin. He's going to take the punishment of sin. It has the idea of, of, of removing sin and the guilt of sin, the presence of sin, the power of sin. That's what he's going to do. It's, he's going to deal with sin. He, he's going to deal with sin in, in the way in which God is pleased, in the way in which God has predestined, in, in which a way that no one else can deal with sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is going to deal with sin. And he is the only one that can deal with sin. He's the only one that can take it away. I am, I am saddened by uh, when I listen to, to many pastors around the United States, maybe even in our, own, in, our own, in our own county, where when they talk about Jesus, they talk about Jesus as a one of many means in which to deal with sin. There's other means by which we can deal with sin. There's certain rituals that you and I can do. We can light certain candles at certain times. And if we light the candle at a certain time and we say the right words at the right time as we're lighting that certain candle, we can deal with our sin. Right? We do this ritual at this time and do this. Friends, do you not see the exclusivity of Jesus Do you not see that he is the one who takes away sins? Him exclusively? This is God's predetermined method of dealing with sin? Notice that he's dealing with sin. He's removing sin. He's not celebrating sin. He's not winking at it. He's dealing with it. It's interesting that he's dealing with the sin, right? This this problem 
the, the problem that the world is in, sin, the curse, the fall, all that happens with the sin. He's dealing with the whole, all of sin, the guilt of sin, the punishment of sin, not only of collectively of all mankind, but of every single individual, right? He's dealing with sin. He's offering a provision to deal with sin. He, as the Lamb of God, is doing that, and he exclusively is the one that can remove sin, get rid of its guilt, get rid of its punishment. He alone can do that. And it's interesting that he's dealing with the sin of the world. Once again, just if you can, I know this is kind of hard, but imagine for a moment that you're a Jewish guy back at the time of John the Baptist. You have a theology that God only deals with the Jews, that the Jews are the chosen people. We're it. This is it. We are, the, we are God's chosen people. Certain, certain uh, pride comes from that. God dealt with us. We have Abraham. We have Isaac. We have Jacob. We have the law. We have the promises. All those other people got to come to us if they want to get right with the Lord. That was the prevalent teaching at the time. So when John the Baptist now is talking about this one who outranks him, calls him the Lamb of God, scandalous statement. Then he says, not only is this one the Lamb of God, he's going to take away sins and forgive sins. Think about that. Only God can deal with sin. But now he's saying, of the world. Here's another one of those moments that probably in their mind, the only way that you could describe it is, what? What? The world? The world? Not the Jew? The Gentile too? The Goyim? Oh, man. Really? Them too? Those rotten sinners? He's going to deal with their sin too? Wait a minute. He's going to deal with our sin? Are you saying that the Jews are sinners too? That's what he's going to do. He's going to deal with the sins of the world. I suppose we could ask the question, if Jesus dealt with the sins of the world at the cross, then why do people still die in their sin? I think, I, I think it's very clear from the rest of Scripture the answer to that question. I don't think this is a uh, statement for universalism, meaning that Jesus dies on the cross, everybody gets a blank check, and you get to go into heaven for free. That's it, whether you live for him or not. I think what this is pointing to is the purpose and ministry of Jesus. Theologically, when we think about Jesus and his death on the cross— and what he did and what he offers, Jesus offers, he made a provision for every single person to have their sins forgiven. That's clear. He made a provision for all mankind without distinction. However, that doesn't mean that everyone will experience that provision. It doesn't mean that everyone accepts that provision Think about how sad this is, that here God, in his infinite love, in dealing with this huge problem of sin, offers this way of salvation to have your sin forgiven, dealt with, removed, a way to be right with God. He offers this. And the world, in its sinful depravity, we did it too, turned our back to that offer walked away from that offer, rejected that offer. It is only because of the work of God's 
of God in our hearts, that we could even turn around and look to see the offer. It's because of his work that we can then believe the offer, but there are many who do not accept that offer and reject it. And therefore, because they reject the offer to deal with sin, they are punished. And when they stand before the great white throne judgment, guess what the Guess how they'll be judged? They'll be judged based off of what they did with Jesus in this offer. It's an incredible offer. It's to the world. And that's what he's doing here. He's making this provision to deal with the problem of sin. But this morning, with the time we have left, I want to think about what this means for us as believers when we talk about Jesus as our Lamb of God. And what does the New Testament teach about things that happen when a person believes, that, believes in Jesus? And what does the cross, what is the death and, and burial and the resurrection of Jesus, what does that do for us as the believer? What are some of the things that happen? So I'm going to be using some big words. You're going to have to forgive me. But I like big words, and I like when we use big words because they're fun to say. I'm not trying to pontificate. I just like saying them, right? Some of these are going to be fun words, and hopefully you can add them to your theological vocabulary. And if you're ever playing Bible trivia, guess what? You can automatically get 20 points for knowing some of these words. So it's a, it's a win-win-win. What's the, what's the thing that happens to a believer when he places his faith in Christ? What's one of these things that happen? The first thing that happens in dealing with Jesus as the Lamb of God, dying in my place, he's vicariously dying for me, meaning he's, he's dying as if I was there. He is my penal substitution, meaning I deserve a punishment. The wages of sin is death. I deserve judgment and a punishment. He took that punishment for me. What happens? The Bible teaches us that we are now purified. Right? We're purified. So think about this. In the Old Testament, when you had the lamb and you did that thing with the lamb, the, the priest would say, you are now clean. It doesn't mean that you don't have dirt on your hands. What it means is, is that ritually you're clean. It means now you can participate in the things of God. It, it now means that you, you have this opportunity to be right with God. There's this closeness now. There's this cleanliness there's this ritual cleanse this ritual cleanliness this purification now now you can interact with god and interact with the holy things and you can interact inside of this temple space sin, sin for a moment is being dealt with right because there's this atonement when when you and i place our faith in christ we are told that we are sprinkled clean that means now i have access to the things of god That means now I have access to God and a close relationship with him. I'm clean. I'm ritually clean. I'm pure. I can now interact with him. Before I was off, there was was this sin issue that was between me and him. Now that's done away with, and I'm pure. That's an incredible, incredible thought. There's numerous passages that talk about this cleansing. talks about who does this, right? The Holy Spirit cleanses us. Christ sprinkles, sprinkles our conscience clean. There's a sense of removal of guilt and the sense of guilt. I'm no longer under the wrath of God. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how we used to be far off. We used to be without hope. 
But now we've been brought near by the precious blood of Jesus. Now we have this access to him. Now we're considered clean. Not, not, sin has been dealt with and I'm clean. It's incredible. There's another thing that happens when we place our faith in Christ. You have to forgive me, but I love the word. It's expiation. Oh, big, nice word. Love expiation. You know what that means? Expiation really means this. The removal of the sentence. So think of this. Well, let's, let's look at it. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Just notice in verse 3. Here Paul's talking about what we used to be, how we used to be sinners away from Christ. And he says, Among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. I understand this to mean that when I was born, I was born under the wrath of God. I was going to experience that. That was my sentence. I was guilty. I was guilty of sin. I was guilty of sin. And then I sinned, which made me even more guilty, right? There's this running sentencing from a righteous, holy judge of my guilt. But then notice what this next statement says. But God... I got it. I got it. I got to be honest. Uh, are there any sweeter words than those two words in this context? You used to be this terrible person, sin, sinful, away from the from the love of God, uh, you know, under His wrath. But God, right? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By, uh, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him, seating us uh, in the heavenly places. You see what happens? Before we were guilty, deserving the punishment of wrath, but God's love through Jesus Christ erased that penalty. I no longer have to bear the guilt of my sin. I'm not guilty. I'm declared innocent now. That's expiation. Great word. Great thought. This is what happens when Jesus died on the cross and I place my faith in him. I now no longer have to experience that guilt. I'm not guilty anymore because of what Jesus did. I'm not guilty. There's another word. Go with me to 1 John. For all of you who don't know where 1 John is, it's right before 2 John. I'm joking. It's right after 2 Peter. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Notice what it says. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for, for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's another thing that happens, propitiation. It's another good word, right? Propitiation. So if expiation is the removal of guilt of the sentence, propitiation is the removal of the sentence. So I'm no longer guilty 
But guess what? I could still be considered innocent, but God's saying you still got to pay for it. Propitiation is Jesus satisfied that requirement on the cross for me so that I no longer have to experience the wrath of God. I don't have to experience the actual punishment of the wrath of God. That's what propitiation is. Now, in today's theological world, a lot of people don't like the word propitiation. They don't like this concept that God has anger and he has wrath. And I admit that it's easy sometimes for us to look at the sinfulness of people around us and openly condemn them, sinners acting like sinners who don't have Jesus Christ, and say, well, why can't you act like, as if you had Jesus Christ? I, that's not good, right? We as believers should also be gracious. Of course, God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy and a God of grace. Amen. He's a God who forgives. Amen. But if, if you and I don't see God biblically, see him as he actually portrays himself, we got a real issue. And I feel like people soft-pedal the wrath of God because it's not very politically correct in today's world. But let's be honest. When you read from Genesis to Revelation, there are numerous times where it speaks of the anger of God and the wrath of God. So therefore, he does get angry and he does have wrath. It's clearly demonstrated in the scriptures. To, to ignore it, that, he's, that he doesn't do this, is to ignore massive passages of scripture. So we have to admit, he does get angry and he does have wrath. But, as the Bible teaches us about the character of God... One attribute of God does not infringe or diminish any of the other attributes. So God is perfectly loving, and he is perfect, perfectly wrathful, perfectly holy, perfectly fatherly, perfectly creative. He is all of those things, and they do not infringe on each other. And if you look at all of those times where God is angry and God is wrathful, it is because of sin. And you have to understand that when we're dealing with God, we're dealing with a being that so intensely loves goodness and righteousness and holiness and sees the world in such clarity and sees the the. The, the destructive nature and the depravity of man and the sinfulness of sin, he sees all of this so clearly that when he sees an act of evil, there is this controlled, rational wrath. There has to be something that deals with that sin. And this passage speaks to us about what that is. So in Notice in 2.2, it says, Jesus is the propitiation. So here you have this God that loves holiness, that loves righteousness, loves what is good so intensely and has to deal with sin, but yet is also a God of love and mercy and forgiveness that the only way to reconcile those is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. 
He is the propitiation. He deals with that. He removes the punishment to the point that we as believers can say, I no longer have condemnation. That's removed. He's the propitiation. Notice what it says. He's the propitiation of, for our sins, the church, but not only ours, for the whole world. That offer's there. They, they could flee the wrath of God. They can flee Sodom. But like Lot's wife, they turn around. And it only, the only way that they could see the light of the gospel is the work of the Spirit upon their heart and the word of God opening and breaking that sinful heart. There's another thing that happens. We talked a little bit about it. It's this reconciliation. You think about it, you and I, we've run away, we've sinned, and God in his great love reached down and grabbed us and is pulling us back to himself so that now we have this close relationship with him, right? So there's purification, I'm pure, there's expiation, the guilt is gone. There's propitiation, the punishment is gone. There's reconciliation, which means now I'm right with him. And then there's another one, justification. We talked about this in the book of Galatians. Incredible doctrine. Remember, justification is this legal, judicial decision where God declares us righteous and imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So how is sin removed? Because Jesus died on the cross, and when we place our faith in him, that righteousness that he has is imputed to us. So that when we, by faith, place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared and imputed with the righteousness of Christ. I now have the ability now to be right. So, as I think about this this idea of behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it's incredibly deep. And uh, we we didn't even take off the floaties to swim in this pool yet. We're going to talk more about it next week. This week we're talking about behold the Lamb and, and focusing on him who was slain. Next week we're going to look at the Lamb in the book of Revelation. The Lamb who is running around and is alive and vibrant and and standing at the right hand of the Father, right? The Lamb. But I just want to consider, as John the Baptist said, behold, look. The question I had throughout the week was, what does it mean for me as a believer right now to look at Jesus, to behold Jesus? What does that mean? How do I do that? I don't think that means I have some sort of mystical vision where Jesus appears to me. That, that's, not what I, that's not what the New Testament teaches us. What the New Testament teaches us is that we should fill our minds with scriptural thoughts about Jesus Christ. Fill your mind with scriptural thoughts about Jesus Christ, about him saving you, scriptural thoughts. Go through the book of Ephesians. What did Jesus do? What did he do for you? Think about that. What are some of the promises that he offers you? Think about that. Fill your mind with that stuff. Think about that stuff. Meditate on that stuff. Meditate on, on Jesus this week. Great week to think about Jesus from his triumphal entry, which we sang about Hosanna, to the death on the cross. 
and, and, and read those accounts in the Gospels of his last week of his earthly ministry. And, and see how here's Jesus who was tempted in ways that we never have been tempted and did not sin and did not grow faint. Consider, consider the lamb that did not fail. Consider the perfect lamb that did not fail and falter to temptation. And as you're thinking about the lamb that dies on the cross for our sins and didn't falter and didn't fail, realize that this is the one that's the savior of your soul. And as you're considering that, consider the fact that I need to follow him and act like him. And by the power of the spirit, I can fight temptation. By the power of the spirit, I can live righteously. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, I can live a righteous life that honors and glorifies the Father. What does it mean to behold the Lamb? It means to fill our minds with scriptural thoughts of Jesus, what he's done for us on the cross, what that means when he rose from the dead, to look at the scripture and to just marvel, to be in awe, to be in awe of his grace, to be in awe of his love, to be in awe of his holiness, to be in awe of who he is and what he's done for us. As a believer, that's what it means to behold. And so this week, I challenge you, make a concerted effort to look, to consider, to think, to fill your mind with Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross and what that means, what that looks like, what promises are yours, what conditions are yours now. And be enamored with the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. May the Lord help us and give us the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for just this concept of the Lamb of God, that you sent Jesus, the Lamb, to come and die on the cross for our sins. That substitutionary atonement, that we can be right with you, pure, that we can now have access to you. There's this reconciliation. There's the removal of this guilt. All of this is because of your work. And we were too weak to do this. We are incapable of doing this. But you and your great love did this for us in sending your son, Jesus Christ, and dying on the cross for our sins. I pray, Father, this week that we would consider Jesus and think much of him and keep our eyes on Jesus so that... uh, so, and, and that we would be in awe of, of him so that as we live this life and as we go throughout the week, that we would, live, that we would be like him. We uh, thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.